want to start by suggesting to you that really this is not just my problem. This is a problem that we observe across our culture. And I want to, you can see it at a number of different levels, uh, that society has taken something of a kind of inward turn, an obsession with the self. You can see this at the youngest age, when children are exhorted, encouraged to believe that they are special. Now, let me give you a thought experiment. If a young man uh, came to you, maybe 10 or 11 years old, and said to you, you know, I'm, I'm no good at anything, and no one likes me at school, and I'm just really rubbish. 50 years ago, some, the response that someone would have given that young man might have been, well, just kind of forget about what everyone else thinks and just go outside and play outside and um, think about other people, try to get out more, get, get less in your head. Now, the response that a young person would be given to that question is, you must love yourself, you must believe in yourself, you are special, you are unique, you are gifted. The response would be radically different. So you can see it in the way we raise our young people. You can see it in the command. Again, 50 years ago, I think it would have been relatively accepted that the kind of ethic by which we live, the way we do life in our society, would be something along the lines of love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Today, I believe that that would be kind of twisted into a kind of instruction to love yourself, to... um, and you see that in a variety of different ways, but you see that in the, in the millions of pounds that is spent on what we might be described as the self-care industry. Therapies and treatments and all ways of indulging the self and of loving oneself in the pursuit of self-care and self-love. Now, it's very easy when you talk about this whole area to quickly take pot shots at the culture, to quickly kind of mock Uh, the hashtags that come with it, you do you, be your authentic self, and this is kind of mock this phenomenon. But as I've spent time thinking about this inward turn, I think the first thing I've become struck by is the way that this inward turn reflects a real problem, a real problem, and I would describe that problem as the problem of the self. The problem of the self. What do I mean by the problem of the self? Well, really it's the fact that the deepest part of humanity, of human beings, is a longing for recognition and approval. A longing for recognition and approval. Uh, There was a politician in the 1980s, a mayor of New York, uh, called Ed Koch, who was forever asking when he met someone, how am I doing? He would meet you by the shake of your hand and he'd say, how am I doing? And it was kind of play on words instead of how are you doing, how am I doing? Because like all politicians, Ed was interested in what you thought of him. But uh, a man called uh, Glenn Harrison, who spoke here a couple of years ago, made the point as he talked about Ed, was that's exactly what each one of us is doing. When we find ourselves in any kind of social interaction, we are asking that same question of others. What do they think of me? <laughs> how am I doing What is their opinion of me? What do they think of what I'm saying? That question looms over every social interaction we have. Uh, This goes back throughout history. uh, Different social scientists and philosophers have recognized this trend. Uh, Perhaps one of the first thinkers to spot this longing for recognition, Plato, uh, suggested that the human psyche can be divided into three parts, the seat of the intellect, the seat of the emotions, and something called the thymos, which is the seat of really the desire for approval, uh, for self-worth, for recognition and significance. So there is a longing at the heart of humanity for approval and recognition. And you can see this negatively. You can see this, and some of you know this from your own personal experience and from friends you know, that many of us are affected by a negative sense of self-worth. When we don't feel that approval and recognition, we can deeply impact us negatively. We can be crippled, and I've seen this as a pastor, different people I know, people I've, I've walked with. I've seen folk crippled by a sense of inadequacy, of feeling not good enough. Uh, you might have heard of something called imposter syndrome, the idea of feeling like you're just a fraud doing your job, and uh, maybe one day your colleagues are going to find that out, that you are not really good, and so you sh- then you lose your job. 
Uh, so a fit met folk who are crippled by a sense of inadequacy, of not feeling good enough. Those who are depressed by their inability to meet their own expectations. Depressed by their inability to meet their own expectations. And then others who are going through a kind of spiral of insecurity, folk walking around wondering whether they're really any good at anything, or whether anybody really likes them, and then kind of getting worse and worse, and perhaps then performing worse at their job, and then sometimes it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that our insecurities then find themselves being fulfilled in reality. So I think it's fair to say that this idea of low self-esteem, a low sense of self, is crippling. And I think society is searching for a kind of durable, deep answer to the problem of where will I find my sense of worth and value? That is a universal longing in the human heart. Where will I find my sense of worth and value? And my conviction for you this evening is we have been trying to answer that longing in the wrong way. In our culture today, the way we seek to answer the longing for human worth and value is almost the exact opposite of how we need to answer that question. We've been told to tell ourselves that we're valuable, to boost our self-esteem, and yet we find that that leaves us feeling hollow and empty. We've been told to define ourselves and express it to the world, and that leaves us insecure and fighting for attention under the critical gaze of our peers on social media. We've been told to love ourselves, and we've overspent on self-care in the pursuit of a kind of sense of value and comfort, and we found that that doesn't deliver. So the answers that our culture gives to the longing for the sense of worth and value don't deliver. And I want to suggest to you right off the bat that this is a spiritual problem. And you know I'm a pastor, and uh, I didn't come from a Christian family. I became a Christian uh, about 16 years ago uh, while I was at university. And I became convinced it was true, separate to whether or not it answers this longing. But I've become convinced over years of ministering and talking to different people around the problem of the self that the Christian faith connects most deeply with this human longing for worth and value. And to understand this, you have to go back a little bit and see that the self-obsession that we see in our culture has come alongside the rejection of organized religion. That over the last half century or so, uh, certainly in British culture and in many other countries in the West, there's been a rejection of organized religion or institutions that would tell us who we are. And instead, there's been a kind of embrace of the idea of freedom. Uh, I think uh, the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche put it very simply, God is dead, and now I am the master of my own <laughs> destiny. Um, we would say, I am the judge of my own life. I must have maximum freedom to be able to make my own life choices and to craft my identity. I must be able to shape who I am. And that sounds really intuitively compelling, and yet my suggestion to you this evening, and I'll take some time to try and talk you through this, is that actually, as we've removed God, as we've removed God as the source of comfort, love, and the fundamental guarantor of our worth and value, that has left us feeling with this great sense of despair, a great longing for that sense of worth and value. Uh, Alan Ehrenberg who I believe is a secular Canadian philosopher, wrote a book called The Weariness of the Self. And in it, he really is talking about the, the problem of depression, but, it, but in a way, he's describing the modern um, phenomenon of pursuing this idea of freedom, pursuing the uh, freedom to decide who you are, to shape your own destiny, to remove any kind of divine or organized religion that might shape uh, who you are. And actually, we end up feeling weary and exhausted. And this is how we describe the problem, the, the difference between the rhetoric of freedom, the idea of freedom, and the reality. He said, we've imagined ourselves free from morality, creating herself by herself, shaping our own lives. Instead, she turns out to be fragile, lacking in being, weary of her sovereignty, and full of complaints. I love that phrase, weary of her sovereignty. We wanted to be in control, we removed God from the picture, and as a result, we find ourselves weary. We find ourselves searching around, trying to find some basis of value and worth and significance. And so my attempt this evening will be to try and show you how the Christian story connects with that longing in the human soul for a sense of value and worth 
that cannot be found elsewhere. And I want to take these three trends that, we've, that I've kind of hinted at already, the self-esteem trend, the selfie trend, and the self-love trend, and show you essentially why they're not answering that longing within us, and perhaps convince you why the Christian faith provides a better story. So first of all, then, the age of self-esteem. We've been told to believe in ourselves, and yet that instruction, that exhortation to believe in ourselves actually leaves us feeling hollow. We need an objective and realistic view of ourselves. Now, let me... T- let me you, what, this is such a kind of common phenomenon. You need to just step back and see it in our culture. You, we, we all kind of quickly know the danger of being shaped by other people's opinions. We, you know, you've been told from the youngest age by your parent, don't worry what other people think of you. Instead, what matters is your view of yourself. And so what happened is in the late 20th century, uh, thinkers connected with folk like um, Anne Rand and a man called Nathaniel Brandon um, sought to begin a revolution about boosting young people's sense of self-esteem. Researchers did lots of different studies where they found that low self-esteem was correlated with all sorts of negative outcomes. Things like teenage pregnancy, becoming gang culture, or just simply not performing well in school. And they found that that was correlated with low self-esteem. Now, there may be some social scientists among you in the room who would know that one of the key principles of social science is correlation does not equal causation. Just because two things occur together doesn't mean that that thing caused that thing. And in this case, I think probably what they saw was that low self-esteem was caused by those other things, but instead they identified the causal relationship the other way around. They said low self-esteem causes all these negative things. Low self-esteem causes people to be aggressive towards others. Low self-esteem causes each other to, others to not do well in school. And so what do we need to do? We need to boost self-esteem. And this revolution took place in education um, in the West, in the United States, and the UK from about the kind of 1980s, 1990s onwards. And really, it was conceived of as a kind of social vaccine. The idea, if we can just get young people to believe in themselves, if we can just get them to have a high sense of self, then they will flourish in life. And it sounds kind of intuitively compelling, and there's perhaps something to recommend it, and all sorts of changes took place to, as part of this revolution. Uh, and some of them are a little bit extreme or apocryphal, but I think there was, there was, you will have all experienced this. At one point, teachers in the UK were told not to use red pens. They were instead told to use a mauve only, because red pens, a negative red pen, would be too negative for a child's self-esteem. Um, there's an apocryphal, it may be an apocryphal tale about children who were told not to use skipping ropes in a PE lesson, lest they trip and fall and damage their self-esteem. You'll have all seen uh, participation trophies for, you know, 14th place, it gets a nice certificate. The sense of all sorts of attempts for teachers to try and boost pupils' sense of self-esteem. Perhaps it's even part of the reason why we saw a grade inflation. Uh, between the 1960s and 2004, um, in the US, uh, the SAT scores, uh, so this is kind of co- college application scores, um, fell, but seniors' grades, the kind of the top level at the end of high school, kept rising. So even though their kind of objective standard of performance was getting weaker, uh, they went from one in five students receiving an average A grade to almost one in two, 48% of American students graduating high school received an A grade. So there's this great grade inflation, all these different things, participation trophies, etc. cetera. And, and, and really, all it was about was attempting to boost pupils' sense of self-esteem. You see this in adults, too, where ever since... Probably the 1950s, uh, with the publication of The Power of Positive Thinking by a writer called Norman Vincent Peale, uh, you will see adults going through these kind of affirmation mantras, saying to themselves, I am lovable. Nothing in the world can stop me. And it sounds kind of a bit silly, but researchers in the University of Ontario found over 50% of adults have used these at some time. So we've got this great context, this great movement of trying to boost our self-esteem. And the real irony is, it doesn't work. 
Uh, I mentioned Glenn Harrison, the, prof uh, the em emeritus professor of psychiatry based uh, one time at Bristol University, um, wrote a book called The Big Ego Trip. And in it, he quotes a number of different academic studies that essentially show that psychologists have by and large, debunked this idea of boosting self-esteem. One uh, lady, uh, Joanna Ward, based at the University of Ontario, uh, did a test to prove this. And what she did was she broke uh, university students into three cohorts, and uh, three groups, right, for this test. And the first test were given these mantras, these kind of, you know, mantras like, I am lovable, or um, I am special, I have the resources inside myself which bring energy and dynamism to every encounter. So they were given these statements, and the, the first group were told to, to read them every day, to saturate themselves in these statements for 20 to 30 minutes every day, and, in, and it allowed it to shape their mindset. The second group were given these statements and asked to eva critically evaluate them, to say kind of, essentially, how is this true of me and how is this not true of me? And the third group were given nothing. And the fascinating result is for the second and third group, nothing changed. But for the first group, the group that immersed themselves in these self-affirmation statements, the opposite thing happened to what you'd expect or what you'd want. They got their esteem fell. By a raft of psychometric tests, they felt worse about themselves after going through that study for three months than they did it before. For the, I should say, for those who had a higher sense of self-esteem, those who had a, a high sense of their abilities, like basically they had a big ego, those guys, uh, yeah, they probably did feel a little bit better as a result of going through those affirmation statements. Effectively, they read them and go, yeah, that's true. I am. I am a big deal. I am special. I do bring energy and dynamism. So they, they were fine, but you might say they were fine already. But the group that did the worst were the group who were low self-esteem to begin with. The group that already had a low sense of self-confidence, uh, a sense of feeling unworthy or a low sense of originality. At the end of the three months, they felt even worse about themselves. So no amount of kind of just simply trying to generically boost their self-esteem was enough. And why? Well, I think it, it's, it should be fairly obvious to us if we step back and think, well, really, it's just like trying to Teach yourself propaganda, isn't it? Just trying to tell yourself something with no basis. In fact, it feels hollow and insubstantial. And here's the irony. This great attempt to build our self-esteem that's taken place over the last half century or so actually makes us less helpful for other people. Uh, it, for one, it makes us um, less empathetic and less caring. So the, those who focus on their own self-esteem and maintaining a high sense of self-worth actually get worse at caring for other people. Uh, again, another test uh, done by uh, Jennifer Crocker um, told students to take a test. And for half the group, they were told, however well they did in the test, that they had failed the test. And then straight after being told they failed the test, they were then given a task. They were told to sit down with someone who was going through something difficult, would tell them a, a kind of tale of woe. And effectively, those students who were told that they had failed the test were far worse at being empathetic with the person who was struggling. They interrupted more, they didn't listen, they were essentially just worse at caring for the other person in their struggle. Why? Well, because they were so focused on their failure. Their failure kind of it made them unable then to care for the other person. It makes sense. When you're thinking about your own sense of self-esteem, it will erode your mental capacity to care about others. And in fact, I think you would argue that we've seen this at a grand scale, that our attempts to boost the sense of self-esteem have actually created a generation of narcissists. A lady called uh, Jean Twenge, um, wrote with, another man, with a man called Keith Campbell, uh, a book entitled The Narcissism Epidemic. And in this book, she's writing in 2009, I can only imagine the situation has got a little bit more extreme since when she was writing, where essentially she described um, a test called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. And if you're worried or questioning whether you're a narcissist, you can go online and do the test and find out the answer. Um, but she, um, she, they, they used the uh, results of this Narcissistic Personality Inventory on college students from, I think it's the late 1970s to 2006. And again, they found that in this period when we were trying to boost self-esteem and make people believe that they're valuable, it had the 
unintended consequence of creating a, a higher degree of narcissism in the population that we were working in. This is what she says. Narcissism causes almost all the things that Americans hoped high self-esteem would prevent, including aggression, materialism, a lack of caring for others, and shallow values. In trying to build a society that celebrates high self-esteem, self-expression, and loving yourself, Americans have inadvertently created more narcissists. So we've created a culture where we're less likely to care for each other, We've got, we're kind of focused on this sense of self-worth, but it's elusive, and however much we tell ourselves that we're valuable, it doesn't seem to work. So we need another answer. Where will we find a kind of sense of objective self-worth, an objective measure of your value, which is also realistic, because the, it doesn't sound hollow like these kind of self-esteem-boosting statements that I've mentioned because we need to know that we're valuable. Remember, I take you back right to the beginning. I suggested that there's a longing in the human heart to believe that we are valuable and worth something. We know low, low self-esteem is crippling, but how do we deal with reality? And this is where the Christian worldview starts to speak, because the Christian worldview combines these two elements. On one hand, it says it is a far more realistic diagnosis of your actual character. It doesn't rely on a kind of um, facade of boosterism. Instead, it is fundamentally realistic about your flawedness. It doesn't sugarcoat reality. The Christian faith, or the Bible, says that you're more flawed than you realize. Now, you might think that's not what you're expecting to hear, because you might think Christianity says there are two groups of people. There are good people, religious people who do the right things and follow the religious exhortations of, of the Christian faith, and then there are the bad people, the secular people, the people who ignore God and do wrong things, so to speak. And actually, I would say that, yeah, that's, there's, there's, that's a pattern that we see in, in all of human history, is that we divide society into good people and bad people. And that's not limited to religion. Um, all groups, all people create in-groups and out-groups, uh, progressives and conservatives, or uh, those who are kind of... People who belong in a certain place, and then those people who come from outside. And we're forever creating in groups and out groups. And really, often it's actually another way of us trying to boost our sense of self esteem, isn't it? Of saying, well, I'm part of this group, and everyone else who's not part of this group, they're less than. And it's human nature almost to compare ourselves positively against the out group. Actually, Christianity is different to that. The Christian faith says actually all people are flawed, all people are perhaps worse than they realize particularly when compared with the standard of perfection found in the God who made us. Uh, Alexander Scholzenitsyn, who was a victim of the Soviet gulags, um, would have been the first to say that his captors were evil people, to do that same in-group, out-group thing that I've talked about and to say, the people who tortured me, they were evil and I was a, a good victim. But interestingly, he says something quite different. He said, actually, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And that is really the essence of the belief of the Christian faith about good and evil. So actually, there is good and evil in every one of us, that we are more flawed than we realized, and then you might, and yet there is some good in us. We're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of the, of the perfect creator of the universe. But then you say, well, how do you, how do you say you're valuable then? If you're flawed, this is, we still run up against this, this longing for an objective sense of value. And this is where the Christian faith turns, it, turns on its head and says the, world, the Christian worldview says you're valuable. Well, you're valuable because you were created by God. He intended you to exist you're not just valuable, you are valued. You're not just a cosmic accident. You were created for a relationship with the God who made you. And more than that, you are loved. Because you're not just a cosmic accident, because you were made by God, he made you for this relationship because he loves you. And in fact, he loves you so much, he was willing to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And that value is objective. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on whether you've done the right religious deeds. 
And it's not based on your opinion of yourself, which can vacillate. Some days you can wake up in the morning and think, I'm great. Other days you might wake up in the morning and think, I'm rubbish. But the value you receive in the Christian faith is not based on what you've done, what you've said. It's based on the very fact that you were made by God and that he was willing to send his son to die for you. And we'll come back to that story in a moment. Really what I'm trying to get at is there is a paradox of the heart of humanity. And Ernst Becker, the uh, secular psychologist, uh, describes this paradox well. He says, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly to rot and disappear forever. He's saying there's a paradox. On one hand, we're with this kind of great creation that has incredible creative power. On the other hand, we will die one day. And we might say we're just dust. We'll return to the ground. And the Christian faith seems to connect both these ideas together. And says, on one hand, you're created in the image of God. You're special. One says, yes, you are unique in that God, that God created you with, unique, with gifts and, and talents and all sorts of ways that might confer a sense of worth. And yet you're flawed. You're just dust. And yet you're loved by God. And that's a far better way of finding a sense of value than just simply telling yourself you matter. So that's the, that's the problem of self. That's the one way, one way we see the self-esteem. Let me turn to a second way, the age of the selfie. The age of the selfie. We were told to express ourselves, that we could be anything we wanted to be. But instead, we felt left feeling insecure, living under the critical gaze of our peers on social media. You see... Again, I don't think it will be new to any of you that we've been told from the youngest age to express ourselves. Uh, The sociologist Robert Bella described this as the age of expressive individualism, that we might find our authentic desires inside ourselves and express that to others. And in fact, that's why we need the freedom and the kind of reject organized religion in order to be able to express who we are authentically. And of course, then technology came along, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, to then platforms that gave us the ability to express ourselves. And so much of modern life in the last 20 years has become about presenting ourselves to the world. And you might think that's a good thing. You might say, well, I can authentically express myself. Is that one way to deal with the, the, the longing for worth and value? And yet, I would argue that we experience misery as a result. First of all, you can see this, this volume of how much we are expressing ourselves in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, in one poll in 2015 found the average young woman between the age of 16 and 25 spend five hours a week taking selfies and editing them. Now, I suspect that's probably not true of Londoners. Most of you are in busy jobs. You probably don't even have five hours a week to spare in your life, let alone that you would then spend them taking selfies and editing them. And yet... The idea of the thousands of images. If I think about my young children growing up, I've got three little ones, and think about uh, you know, how much they've been exposed already, at the, age, the old eldest is five, of just hundreds and thousands of images of themselves. So many different opportunities then to present that image as they grow up on different platforms. The average person today has more access to uh, kind of different ways of presenting and curating an image of themselves in terms of different apps for photo retouching and editing and publicizing themselves and makeup tutorials and all that kind of thing that a 1950s Hollywood movie star ever did. You have a platform and the opportunity to express yourself in a way that is unparalleled to previous generations. And yet when this opportunity to express ourselves became connected with that deep longing that I mentioned earlier for value and worth, expressive individualism, the opportunity to express yourself became instead performative individualism, in the words of one writer. Instead, it became our way of expressing ourselves in a multiplicity of ways online, really to pursue likes and clicks, a way of pursuing approval and validation. And this creates a fundamentally competitive dynamic as we all find ourselves on these platforms seeking maximum validation, maximum sense of approval as we produce and create different content that either says something about our lives or says something about us. And this creates a fundamental insecurity in our culture. One writer describes the the problem of coming up and crafting an identity and then seeking maximum validation for that identity in our culture on social media. And this is how he describes it. 
Everyone is on their own private journey of self-discovery and self-expression, so that at times, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are, which is a fairly accurate description of social media. To be recognized is to draw the gaze and attention of others. To be affirmed is to draw their positive gaze. But if we are all responsible for creating and expressing our own identities, then everyone is in competition with everyone else for our limited attention, and no one is secure enough in their own identity to ground us with their approval. How can we cope with such fierce competition? This world where everyone is producing and curating an identity seeking to maximize our sense of approval and validation by presenting that online persona online and just feeding that sense of comparison and insecurity. And with that, with that sense of comparison and insecurity comes all sorts of pressures to present a perfected image to others, to become a perfected version of yourself, to seek that validation and approval. You see this in young people, the horrendous pressure that some young people feel to alter their bodies as they live under that kind of tyranny of comparison. The, in the US, uh, the Association of Facial and Plastic Surgeons said 42% of surgeons have been asked to perform surgery to improve um, folks' selfies and pictures on social media. Nearly half of surgeons have been, asked, have, been, have been sought out for treatment so that somebody can improve the selfies and the pictures they're presenting on social media. Rachel Simmons, in her book, Enough As She Is, uh, describes uh, this problem of kind of comparison with young people, young women in particular, uh, in the words of one 18-year-old who said, I don't hate myself when I'm alone. I hate myself in comparison to other people. In fact, there's a one... Uh, kind of problem that's been one term used to describe now uh, the sense of body dysmorphia that comes from comparing yourself online, described as Snapchat dysmorphia or selfie dysmorphia, which is really a, a sense, a version of body dysmorphia, a version of uh, that self-critical feeling towards your own body. Why? Because you're constantly looking at other images of other people and comparing yourself negatively. And actually, this, this is... This is really what it means to live under the tyranny of the judgment of others. Uh, the uh, writer, the existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, described this really as a vision of hell. Now, he's writing well before social media, but he wrote a play called No Exit. And in this play, he describes three people living um, in a room for eternity, and their hands are bound, and... Um, his, his, his uh, version, this is his version of hell. And his version of hell is three people in a room together for all eternity. And what is making it so difficult for each other is they cannot persuade each other to see them as they see themselves. So they're constantly living under the judgment of the other two people who will not see them in the way that they see themselves. And this is where he comes up with the phrase, hell is other people. Hell is other people, not because... It's just difficult to live with them. He's saying hell is to live under the judgment of others. Hell is to constantly be under the judgment of others, to be under their critical gaze, and to not achieve their, your vision of, what, of who you think you are. And this, is the 20th, this month is the 20th anniversary of Facebook, ladies and gentlemen. We are living in Sartre's vision of hell. We are living in that tyranny of the judgment of other people as we're constantly surrounded by these critical voices, by this world of social media where we were told to express ourselves and then ironically we found ourselves under the critical gaze and the constant temptation to compare and judge ourselves. So if we were told that self-esteem didn't work, that just telling yourself uh, that you were valuable wasn't enough, I think the modern age, the social media age, has convinced us loudly and clearly that equally we cannot live under the judgment of others. We need no convincing that just finding your sense of self-worth in the opinions of others is ever a good idea. It feels fragile. Even if you get someone's approval today, today you get lots of likes on your post or whatever it is, they might cancel you tomorrow. If you get their approval today, you'll be living for their approval tomorrow, seeking to recreate it. It becomes like a kind of treadmill. So where do we find the freedom to escape others' judgment? And again, I want to suggest to you that the Christian story has a better answer. And actually, I want to quote for you one of the writers of the New Testament, a man called Paul, who went on as one of the great advocates of the Christian faith in the first century. And this is what he said, 
I care very little, he's writing to some Christians in, in, the, in, Philippi, in a place called Philippi, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And what, what he's saying is his sense of worth, his own judgment on his life is not shaped either by what they think of him or what anybody else thinks of him or even what he thinks of himself because we all know how much even your own opinion of yourself can be tortuous at times. He's saying, no, my judgment relies on something else, on the judgment of God. Now, when I say that to you, I think some of you will say, well, I don't want to rely on the judgment of God because surely that's an unappealing thing. Well, actually, it isn't for Paul. It isn't for any Christian, for anyone who's put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ because the judgment of God is not based on what they've done. You see, at the, center, the, the central Christian story goes like this. God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world so that all who believe in him, all who put their faith in him, all who begin a relationship with him, will receive his verdict, his approval, his forgiveness, because he went to the cross 2,000 years ago. The central story at the heart of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ came to the earth to die on the cross to take the punishment that humanity deserved, that we've rebelled against God, and that from that we are deserving of punishment from God, but that instead Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, he took the judgment that we deserved, so that we could be forgiven. And with that, we receive a new verdict, which says, essentially, the verdict from God, from all who've put their faith in Christ, all who trust him, that they are forgiven, that they are adopted, that they are loved that this becomes their central identity. Just imagine that was true. I'm not saying you believe it to be true yet. That'll be, a, that'll be another question for another day. If it was true, if it was true that your identity was that you are loved, that you're loved by the God who made you, that you are valuable by the fact that he, he intended you to exist, in fact, that he loved you so much that he was willing to send his son to die for you, and that actually you need not fear his judgment but because Jesus died for your sins on the cross, you would know for absolute certainty that you were forgiven by God and that you were loved by him. If that were true, that would change everything. It means you're no longer worried about what other people think of you because you say, well, actually, the opinion of other people matters not a jot in comparison to the verdict of the God who made me. It doesn't matter even if I don't think I did a, I, I did a very good job today because I know that I'm loved and forgiven by the God who made me. And for anybody who's actually come to take seriously that truth, it changes everything. It means I'm liberated for constantly obsessing about the opinions of other people. Many of us know, I said at the beginning, we all live with that tyranny of worrying about what other people think of us, looming behind every conversation. But for the person who's put their faith in Jesus, for the person who's responded to that invitation that Jesus makes to every person to come into relationship with him, they are liberated from... Um, that obsession with others' opinions, and instead they are then free. They have what one writer describes as they, are, they have the freedom of self-forgetfulness. They have the freedom and liberty to disregard the opinions of other people because they have found a love in God. They have found a sense of approval in God. They have found a, ver a love and an approval that is far greater than anything they might experience from their peers or from the, from the people around them. And so they find an opportunity for true humility, they find a free, an opportunity for the freedom to forget themselves. Not to think less of themselves, but to think of themselves less. The Christian is liberated from that question, what do people think of me? Because they found a love in God that is better than anything else they might experience in this world. Let me give you one final thought then. The age of self-care. We said self-esteem is, is, is wrong-headed and it doesn't lead us anywhere. The pursuit of the approval of others doesn't lead us anywhere. But I want to suggest to you that the age of self-care is also wrong-headed. In the age of self-obsession, we were exhorted to care for ourselves, to show ourselves self-love. And it sounds intuitively compelling, but it doesn't deliver the comfort that we hoped for. Instead, the Christian story would reorientate us and draw us out of ourselves and liberate us from our self-obsession. 
You see, our culture, many voices in our culture, and often many commercial organizations in our culture, exhort us to care for ourselves and to love ourselves. And in fact, $4.2 trillion in 2020 was spent on the self-care industry. Things like therapies and treatments and exercise regimes and all sorts of ways of us trying to perfect and love ourselves. In fact, I believe that's half of what was spent on medical care globally. So we spend half of what we spend on medical care on all sorts of treatments and therapies and ways of caring for the self under the guise and instruction of love yourself, care for yourself, perfect yourself. And in fact, one writer, uh, who I don't think was a Christian when she wrote it, this, uh, her name is Tara Isabella Burton, um, wrote about this kind of almost what the religion of self-love or or cult of self-care, in her words, where she describes this kind of great exhortation to love yourself and how behind it is this kind of almost self-worship. This is how she describes it. Within this model, self-care in the form of fitness classes, intense meditation apps, mindfulness courses, or 10-step skincare routines becomes at once a form of self-love and self-discipline. We're not challenged to love our neighbor as ourselves or to overcome materialistic urges. Instead, our challenges come in the form of intense and often expensive rituals, that morning soul cycle class, an evening 30-minute beauty routine that reaffirm our commitment to perfecting ourselves. If our bodies were once temples, to use a popular diet mantra, now they're miniature gods. We're exhorted to love ourselves, to care for ourselves, to perfect ourselves. And it becomes almost like we are worshipping the self. With the decline of organized religion, instead we live in a world of self-love and self-worship. And you might say, well, why is this so popular? Well, I think in one part it's just a, a substitute for the love of others. If, in a sense, if, even if you don't feel the love of others at this point in your life, if you love yourself, then in one sense, that's one way of finding the love that we are longing for. I think for others, I think it comes from the fact that we're living in a very performative culture. We are constantly trying to perfect and improve ourselves, and we move towards these different treatments and therapies and exercise regimes and all sorts of ways as a way of trying to find some solace and comfort. Um, Somewhere, think about like the Headspace app, for example, as one way of trying to release from all the pressure that so many folk feel. I think for some, it's a kind of refuge from pain. And I think when we look out in the world and we see disorder, uncertainty, but also suffering, then often we go back to these kind of regimes or rituals as a way of providing some kind of comfort in our lives. What's absolutely fascinating is um, one example of this is in 2016, just after Trump's presidential election victory, The first full week after his victory, the online searches for self-care reached a five-year high. (laughs) Basically, the young progressive um, folk who were indulging in all these forms of self-care, in the midst of the the Trump election victory, moved towards these self-care rituals as a way of coping with the pain and fear of Trump's election. Um, and, you know, different headlines came out, like the rise of Donald Trump remi- re- demands we embrace a harder kind of self-care. Um, one one uh, article came out with a self-care guide to TV to watch to forget about Donald Trump's rise. <laughs> and then this article it really takes the biscuit. Okay, you've got to hear this. This made me laugh. Okay. About, this is Dame Magazine's um, article entitled How to Pro- Practice Self-Care in Trump's America. How do you deal with the fact that Donald Trump's ele- been elected? Get a pedicure. This is what it says. <laughs> Those people you are fighting against every day, the ones who hate immigrants and who don't want women to be able to make their own healthcare choices, they want you and people like you and the people you are fighting for to be miserable. If you forget how to enjoy your life, you are helping them win. Self-care is a revolutionary act particularly for marginalized people. Get that pedicure because you deserve feet that don't snag your sheets. The bad guys want you to have nasty feet. If you're going to be out there marching against their BS all damn day, at least have nice feet, damn it. And then post those pretty ass toes on Instagram because you are a human being and you deserve to be able to show your full humanity with people. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. The ills of the world go and get a pedicure. 
There is something about the way we move towards these self-love and self-care rituals as a way of comforting ourselves from the disorder and brokenness that we observe in the world around us. We stick our head under the duvet or we go and do some sort of regime and hope that one day it will all be over and we can find some sort of comfort. But of course, it doesn't work. When you come up from that regime and you, you come back into the real world, the same sense of disorder is there. And even this, I would argue, is a symptom of how we have removed God from our culture. You see, we were never meant to deal with life's challenges alone. We seek these, these re- regimes and rituals of self-indulgence because there's some sense of solace against a brutal and cold world. But actually, part of my conviction as I've become a Christian and come to understand the Christian faith, is that we are weaker than we realize. We were never meant to deal with the brokenness of the world on our own. The most frequent command in the Bible is do not fear. Do not fear. Isn't that interesting? It says the living God who made you knows that life in this world is going to be times upsetting and fearful. But the answer to the comfort that we're longing for is not some kind of act of self-care or self-love, but rather to run to the God who made you and who loves you. That these rituals of self-care and self-indulgence are a poor substitute for the love of the God who made you. I mean, more than that, it's just a brutally individualistic way of doing life. We were never meant to be alone, either alone from the love of our Father in heaven, but also when you become a Christian, You recognize that you're part of a family. In fact, we were always intended to live in community, caring for one another, carrying each other's burdens. So this self-love and self-care is a product of a culture that has lost sight of what it means to be part of a community, what it means to be living under the hand of a God who loves us and made us and cares for us and is even sovereign over the brokenness of this world. And really, it's a symptom of the fact that we are missing the hero of the story. You see, we were told that we are the hero of our own story. But over the last two millennia, except for the last 60 to 80 years, almost all of Western civilization would not have thought of ourselves as the great hero of our story. The reason why we've turned in on ourselves towards self-care and self-love is because we are missing the great hero of history, Jesus Christ, who shows us really what true heroism is. That being a hero is not about authentically living your life, and maximizing the self, but rather true heroism is about denying yourself and laying down your life for others in love. So just stop for a moment, and when you think about Jesus Christ, before you, I know many of you are not Christians here, the first thing you have to see is that even from a purely historical perspective, you have to say, why did he have such a global impact? Why did he have such a global impact when he made such an incredible claim to be God in the flesh? Anybody else who made the claim to be God in the flesh would have been laughed out of the room. Most people who have claimed, made that claim have then, after their life, and they've died, as people have, have left them. Why does Jesus make such an incredible claim to be God in the flesh that no other religious leader, Buddha, Muhammad, other religious leaders of other religions, do not make the claim to be God in the flesh? Jesus is unique among world's heroes, people who've had an impact on history, as having made such a stupendous claim. So you have to at least say he was something special. Why, Why did he have such a great impact? But then look at his life and see that his life was really about sacrifice. This is how one, uh, one passage describes his life, uh, a kind of ancient hymn that goes back probably to the very beginning of the Christian movement. It said, this is how he describes Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This basically says that Jesus, though he was sovereign, seated at the right hand of God, God himself, took the form of a servant, 
came down and humbled himself, was willing to be humiliated and even punished as a criminal on the cross. And that is the ultimate vision of love. That is the ultimate vision of heroism. And as you see that and you come to believe that and you become convinced that that's true, then you see that the great hero of history triumphed not through loving himself, but by denying himself because he loved the world. And that reorientates your whole life if you become a Christian, that suddenly Christ becomes your model, that actually rather than seeking to love yourself, you become one walking in the same posture as Christ, of seeking to love your neighbour, of seeking to live a life of selflessness, just as Christ laid down his life for you. It calls you out of your self-denial, so that you're not just one who receives the love of God, but you become a kind of conduit, a path for the love of God into the world. And that suddenly becomes much more enthralling and exciting. Essentially what it says is you are made for much more than loving yourself. You are made for a relationship with the God who loves you. That was the answer to the longing for worth and value in every human heart. But you were also made to then pass on that love to the world around you. One medieval mystic, Thomas Merton, put out this. To say that I'm made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence. For God is love. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. For the Christian, you're not just one who receives the love of God. You're one who then spends the rest of your life pointing others to this great love, inviting others to experience that love for themselves and sharing his love with, your, with everyone around you. Essentially, it says you are made for more than, love, than self-love, that you are made to receive the love from God that this is the answer to the longing for worth and value and significance in the heart of every human being. You are made to be liberated from worrying about the opinions of others, to be able to forget yourself, to replace the judgmental gaze of your peers and critics, all the fake self-love of self-esteem boosterism with this far better love from God, to replace a self-obsession with self-forgetfulness, and to call you out of yourself to live a life of sharing God's love with all the people around you. What if it's true? What if it's true? What if there is a love at the center of the universe that answers our deepest longings and that liberates us from the tyranny of trying to justify our existence, trying to prove ourselves to the people around us? What about if self-obsession was a real counterfeit compared to living in the love of God. That, I would argue, is the Christian faith in a nutshell. That you weren't made to love yourself. That you weren't made to uh, try and prove or, uh, your, your value by telling yourself that you're valuable. But instead, you were made for a relationship with the God who loves you. The reason why these ideas have purchase is because they're like lifeboats that we're grabbing hold of, but really they just collapse into the sea. That instead... We were made for a love from the God who made us. That is my conviction, and I would love to uh, explore that a little bit more over Q&A. I suspect there'll be many questions and disagreement and things we want to grapple with, so um, I'd love to do that with you in a moment. Great.